I have a question for you this morning. Are you living expectantly? I wonder if you woke up this morning, shook the sleep off of your face, kicked your feet over the edge of your bed, squished the toes on the floor with an excited feeling that something good was going to happen today. Now, I know that may be a bit much to ask, like right away at that particular moment in the morning before your coffee, tea, or Red Bull. But I wonder if you are living expectantly. Do you have the sense that this day could be the day that changes the rest of your life? Do you have the sense that you could be used in someone else's life today to change the rest of their lives? Are you living with the expectation that you could be an agent of that kind of change? That you have that kind of power at your disposal that living expectantly and living intentionally you could alter someone's reality. I'm asking you to consider that you have that kind of power at your disposal, that something you say could alter, something, some way that you live could alter history. Now, I know that was a little bit, you know, right at you right away. So let me be clear by what I'm saying. I am not saying when I ask, are you living expectantly? Do you believe that your life could change someone's life and could alter history? I am not saying that you have to think, oh, so I have to live like an epic life. It's not what I'm saying. You do not have to do or live something epic in order to have an epic or extraordinary impact. What I'm on about is living expectantly in the ordinary, in the regular routine things that you do, going to work, exerting yourself in manual labor, interacting with those in your community, taking part in a simple meal of bread, you know, maybe a little hummus or honey or extra crunchy peanut butter because that's what Christians eat, not creamy. (laughs) Sitting around a fire, coming home at the end of a long day. In all of that, I am merely proposing that you live expectantly, living with the expectation that you could be the recipient of grace or love or hope, or you could be a giver of grace or love or hope in such a way that could change a life. Today. Today. In one day, this could be that day. Now, do you know why I'm so confident of this? Because the Bible tells me so. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we're in a story about a woman named Ruth, and it is also a story about her mom, Naomi. And most importantly, it is a story about their God, Yahweh. Now, these two women are widows, and they've just made their way 50 miles from Moab to Bethlehem in Judah in the Middle East. Naomi has returned to her homeland empty, weary, tired, depressed, despairing, and hopeless. And Ruth has returned with her, committed to her in loyal love, turning her back on everything that she knew, her culture, her people, her city, her gods. And this morning in chapter two, we see the story of one day. I haven't seen that before. I don't think that struck me before. The beginning of the chapter begins in the morning. The end of the chapter ends at the end of that day. One day. 
in the life of two vulnerable, alone, poor, at-risk widows. It is the story of how one day changed their lives. And it's the story of how one person, as an emissary of and channel for the grace of God in one day, significantly altered the trajectory of their lives and therefore the trajectory of all of history, including our lives here today. That happened in one day. And while... What we're about to see in this story, how this one person is able to have such an impact, it applies to all of us, men and women, boys and girls. That power is at all of our disposal. While that's true, I believe the focus of this story and therefore the focus of this sermon is an example of what it looks like to be a righteous man, a good man, a loving, heroic, gracious influential, chivalrous, manly man. So men, I'm coming after you today. I'm just telling you right at the get-go, boys, I'm coming after you today. Because in this story, we're going to see a man of valor, a source of redemption and restoration in a dark and broken world, a source of peace and shalom in a world of chaos and restlessness, a bringer of goodness and justice and happiness and contentedness. And that is the kind of man that every man here should want to be. Oh man, I feel good just talking about it. Like I want to be like this as a man. And ladies, The kind of man you're going to see here is the kind of man that every woman should want to be around. Girls, it's the kind of, the man we're going to see here is the kind of man you should be looking for, praying to God for. Because the man we're going to see here is the kind of men that this world desperately needs. Let's pray. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And because I do, I believe that he is here this morning and he has already been at work. And I want to ask right now, particularly for the men and boys in this room this morning and watching online, I ask that you would shake us up and get our attention today, that you would make us righteous men, good men, and godly men, men like the man we're going to see today in just another ordinary day in his life. And I know, Father, that In praying for men like that, it means by extension that I am praying for the good of every woman and every child in this room and online and in our town and in our culture because the world needs righteous, good, peace-bringing, shalom-influencing, justice-trumpeting men. So use this one day, this one service, this one sermon to change our world for generations to come. Because we believe in the Holy Spirit and we believe that you're God and you can do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so it is important to remember the time our characters find themselves living in by going back to the beginning of the story. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel. Now you remember that we said two weeks ago, these are the days described. Just one verse earlier, if you go one verse up in your Bible from Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see Judges 21, 25. 
in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So what I want to do right now is put a finer point on what that meant for women in those days. Because I think that we come to this story, the danger in coming to the story of Ruth, if you've heard it in church, if you've read it, if you've seen it in Sunday school classrooms, is that we come to it with this kind of idyllic, romantic notion and picture, right? It's like a Disney princess story. It's just so exciting and romantic and the boy's going to meet the girl and it's going to end up happily ever after. And that is not this story. These are dark days. Little bluebirds aren't landing on her shoulders singing, what a wonderful world. (laughs) These are evil and dangerous days, especially, especially for women. These are days when men violated and abused women with impunity. And the chances of finding gracious men who do good deeds is incredibly remote. So to be a woman alone and on your own, all the more risky because it's just chaos and corruption and there is no chivalry and honor and integrity and grace and gentleness. I mean, those things are in short supply in these days, but not non-existent, which is what Our narrator makes clear, verse 1. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Okay, so here's what he just did there. You know how when you're reading a novel sometimes or you're watching like a mystery thriller, the, the author, the narrator, will give you like this little kind of story fact about a particular character that none of the other characters in the story are aware of? but that you as the reader are aware of so that you've got this bit of information as the story now starts to unfold and you know it and you're like, hey, hey, wait, wait, like I see. And, and they just, they, they're oblivious. They don't know what's going on, right? That's what he just did. He just kind of dropped, hey, there's this guy and he's wealthy and he's influential and his name is Boaz and he's a relative of Elimelech. And we're all going, wait a second, I thought there were no relatives because that's what we saw in chapter one. Empty life, right? All alone. Next. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough, literally, so she says, anyone who is kind enough to let me do it, literally, let me go behind someone who will be gracious to me. Naomi replied, when Ruth says this, all right, my daughter, just go ahead. The lives of Ruth and Naomi haven't been easy. They're all on their own. They have no family connections. They have no resources. And they're getting hungry. And now Ruth in another act of loyal love, feels the need to do something about it. She has likely learned the cultural customs of Israel from her mother-in-law, right? So she knows the instructions of her new God to his people, the words that you just heard read at the beginning of the service in Deuteronomy 24. I think Ruth knows those words. So she's going to go out, and she's hopeful that even in these dark and dangerous days, there might be someone out there gracious enough, just one person who might not be doing what is right in his own eyes, but is actually doing what is right in God's eyes so that they can simply 
eat. And Naomi, maybe due to despair and depression, consents, go ahead, but stays behind. Go ahead, she says, knowing the times that they are living in, knowing the potential dangers that Ruth faces, knowing that the odds might be at least a little bit better if there's two women out there trying to find a place to gather food. But she stays. And so we picture Ruth. Imagine Imagine her getting herself ready in this moment, right? No doubt with some anxiety, aware of the time that she is living in and she's going out now as a woman all alone in these dark days with the potential for danger all around her, hoping and praying that there will be someone gracious enough to just kind of leave me alone so I can get some food. Verse 3, so Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Okay, don't you just love that? As it happened. By sheer luck, wink, wink, Ruth happens to find herself working in a field owned by, wait for it, wait for it, Dun-dun-dun! Boaz! Wealthy Boaz, influential Boaz, relative of Elimelech Boaz. Well, go figure. Verse 4, while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. (laughs) This is getting positively hilarious. Hilarious, like while she was there. So she happens to be in the field of Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Elimelech. And while she's there, he happens to show up. It's like someone's orchestrating events so they come into contact or something. Verse 4, and Boaz greeted the harvesters. Yahweh be with you, he said. Yahweh bless you, the harvesters replied. Now, We may initially think that this is a small thing, but I think that there's actually something significant here. I think that we are getting a first glimpse of something about Boaz that tells us a great deal about him. Something that we're going to see confirmed as this day kind of rolls out in our our story. And, And here's what I think that we're seeing. I think Boaz is a man who is happy in Yahweh. I think Boaz is a man who loves Yahweh. I think Boaz is a man who woke up on that morning, not so long ago, didn't have his coffee, didn't have his tea, there was no Red Bull, but the joy of the Lord was his strength as he faced the new day. And he's on the lookout as he enters this workday for ways in the dark days that he is living in, in a culture not following Yahweh where there is chaos and danger. In his little corner of Bethlehem, just a few hundred people in this big, wide world, he's looking for ways to bring about peace and wholeness, to bring about order out of chaos in his work. He wants to inject goodness and rightness and justice and happiness and contentedness into his 
community. I think he's happy. And I think that he is. So why, why would Boaz be so blooming happy? Because Boaz sees himself as a beneficiary of Yahweh's grace in his own life. I think Boaz has a personal relationship with Yahweh that has resulted in the blessings of wealth and influence and privilege flowing towards him. And he sees Yahweh as intimately involved in each and every little part and aspect of his life. And therefore, he wants to be a radiant reflector, right? He understands he's an image bearer of God. And he wants to be a radiant reflector of God in all he does and all he says. So that squishes out in the smallest of ways so that when he rolls up to work in the morning, he's like, hey, dudes, Yahweh be with you. And they're like, hey, Boaz boss man, Yahweh bless you too, brother. I don't know why I had an accent there. That didn't sound very Jewish. I... Do you, do you see it? What's happening is joy, delight, God in every moment of every day. This gratitude, thankfulness, blessing, spreading a little moment of shalom and mindfulness. Is that epic? Did he just do something epic? No. He just greeted his workers. It was ordinary and extraordinary. And then, because he's on the lookout for good, because he cares about the people who work for him, because he's living expectantly, something, someone, catches Boaz's eye. So he saunters over to his foreman, verse 5, and he asks his foreman, who's that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? Not... Who does she work for? But whose is she? In other words, who's her father, brother, husband? Who, who takes care of her? Because Boaz right away is connecting dots already. Because he wants to know why is this woman gleaning in this place in my field? Verse 6, and the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters, and she has been hard at work ever since except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. So Boaz went over and said to Ruth, he does not waste a moment. And I believe that's because as someone who has tasted of the grace and blessing of Yahweh, as someone who walks with Yahweh, right? Okay, see, he's, he's walking with Yahweh and he sees the world around it and the people in it through the lenses of that. He sees the world as Yahweh sees it. So he doesn't need any time to think about what he should do because there's this internal spiritual muscle that's immediately responding. It's compassion inside of him that when he sees need, he just, the muscle just, boom, moves right towards it. Because he's a man who loves Yahweh and he has a heart that loves who Yahweh loves. See, Boaz is a man of redemption. He's on the lookout. He's a redeemer figure in Yahweh's world. He has the heart of God because he has meditated, I believe, on God's law, like we read in Deuteronomy 24. 
And he sees, I think Boaz sees that law as an expression of the character and the love of God. Not merely as something to be obeyed, but but that is something that is a pathway for shalom and joy and peace in this world. And so he's living expectantly for the places where he can be an expression of the character of God and the love of God because he lives with his God in the same covenant of grace. And so do you see? It's It's just ordinary for him. He's living and breathing this. There's a relationship of love. He feels the grace of God. So it's not like, oh, I have to, you know, do these things. It's not duty for Boaz, I imagine, but delight. Verse 8, listen, my daughter. Stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field that they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water that they have drawn from the well. Family, Boaz takes Ruth under his wing. And I want you to notice something that he does here. I want you to see this. Boaz doesn't follow the letter of the law because he's not doing this out of duty. He follows and goes beyond what the law requires because he is doing this out of delight. He has tasted the extravagant goodness of God, the joy of Yahweh's generosity, so that his own generosity is now a celebration and completion of that act of God in his life. (laughs) We might say pay it forward, right? So he doesn't just open the edges of his field to Ruth for gleaning. He opens the heart of his fields to Ruth for harvesting. And he doesn't just leave that to chance, but instructs her to work with the women who work for him. And as a good boss, he's aware of the knuckleheads who work for him. And he's already had a talk with them before he even walks over to talk with her, warning them, you better not lay hands on this woman which is significant, right? Because you don't issue warnings where you don't think there isn't a possibility of danger. So he knows and he protects her. Verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. Ruth is shocked at Boaz's display of generosity and and so she's overcome with thanksgiving. I mean, let's not forget how the day started. Do you remember how she left the house that morning unaware of what the day would bring, the dangers facing her, praying that she would find someone to be gracious to her, someone in these dark days of disobedience that would allow God's law to function, who would, not, who would allow not only a widow, but a Moabite to get a little food so she and Naomi could survive. And now here's this man coming up to her, providing for and protecting her. And she's wondering, why? Why would you do this? Well, we've already seen part of the reason. I think why is because Boaz was living expectantly. He was on the lookout for someone who had a need like this so that he could fill that need. 
But now Boaz is going to give us another reason for why he is doing this for Ruth. Verse 11. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. In other words, I, I know that you're only a foreigner. But I also know about everything that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, right? Because he's a man of influence and social connections. We're going to see that even more in chapter 4, the kind of standing that he has in his community. I know about everything that you've done. I've heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So we just saw another biblical principle here that I want to make sure that we see. Namely, God rewards in this life and in the life to come good deeds done in his name. The old covenant is full of language like this, blessing for obedience. And the new covenant contains it equally. I mean, read how many times Jesus talks about the rewards that come our way for obedience. And here, Boaz is recognizing and explaining it. (laughs) He says, you're praising me for doing this good thing for you? Well, the reason I'm doing this good thing is because you have done a good thing, a remarkable thing, and Yahweh is using me as a means of rewarding you. And he doesn't stop there, but prays to Yahweh to rain down even more blessings, a full blessing. May Yahweh fully reward you for the good that you have done. So there's a biblical principle here. While we don't do good to obligate God to do good to us, our good very clearly draws out of the Father his blessing upon us. And I believe that we can fully expect and count on that. That's what Jesus, when Jesus talks about these principles, he says, do the good thing so that you'll get the reward. It's okay. Verse 13. We could talk about that more. We don't have time. I hope I continue to please you, sir. She replied, you have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. How beautiful is this? Can you imagine how weary Ruth probably is at this point and how tired that she is? Have you ever had to be a caregiver for someone for an extended period of time? You know, like there's this joy that you have in taking care of someone who's difficult to be with and difficult to care for, which I think is the place that Naomi finds herself in. She's like in this really dark place. But it also is an incredibly depleting thing, isn't it? Like when we're caring for another person, it draws resources out from us. And she's probably really tired and she's hungry and she's looking for food. And she says, like, Boaz, this thing that you have done, this speaking kindly to me, isn't it amazing what just a word can do to refresh and to restore someone who's tired and weary, what an act, a simple act of kindness like a meal can do to to reinvigorate not only the body, but the soul. Isn't it amazing the power that that has? It's been quite a day for Ruth already, hasn't it? 
but it's not over. Verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz called to her. So they've been working. It's probably near supper time. Come over here, Ruth, and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat, and she ate all she wanted and still had some left over. And then Ruth went back to work again, and Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her, and let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket and she carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law and Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal you know what in almost all cases it's fun to give right like who here thinks it's fun to give something to someone else right like don't we say it is more blessed to give than to receive and if you're older than eight You know that's true. And Boaz, I think like at mealtime, like he just can't stop himself. He is greedy for the joy of giving. He invites her to eat with his harvesters, which is unheard of. He offers her bread and its fancy dip. He gives her roasted grain. She eats all she wants. Can you imagine the last time Ruth's belly was full? And she had to stop eating, and there was still food left over. He doesn't have her glean, but gives the order, let her gather among the sheaves. In other words, let her have the best of my harvest. No charge. And he orders, (laughs) this is fantastic, make it easy for her. I want you to be gathering, and then I kind of want you to be like dropping stuff, like as you go along, like right in front of her, like, oh, oh, there she, okay, here we go, yep, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, so she can gather it up, and it's really easy for her. And he orders, do not give her a hard time. In other words, construction workers, no cat calls, right? She's a Moabite, no racial slurs here. No comments about her. Shut your mouth and be good to her. And what does Ruth, the hard worker, do? (laughs) Gathers 50 pounds of grain. Okay, by way of reference, the average harvester would gather about two pounds a day. 50 pounds. So between what they're doing to make it easy for her and how hard she works, we already know that. She only took one rest in the whole morning. (laughs) She gathers enough to feed a group of 50 men enough to last them for months. The cupboards are full. And after a full day in hot fields, Ruth, you know, CrossFit Ruth, (laughs) hefts the 50 pounds on her back, the end of a hot day in the Middle East, brings it all the way home, along with a meal for her mom to boot. So that, right? Okay, end of the day, You've just been sitting at home all by yourself, maybe in the dark, Naomi. And she walks in with 50 pounds of grain. Okay, what? Ruth has, has to be, Naomi has to be wondering, what is going, and she says, where did you gather all this grain today? Where did you work? Were you at like the silo and they just dumped it? May Yahweh bless the one who helped you. Read, shocked, mama. In other words, 
How in the world could you glean this much grain? Because gleanings were just what was dropped in the edges of the field. I mean, it would be impossible to get 50 pounds of grain just at the edges of a field. So picture these two women after how this day, this one day began. Imagine where they were about 12 hours ago and where they are now. Imagine how different their life looks for them. And Naomi is on the edge of her seat to hear what in the world happened. And Ruth, I think, is excited to tell her. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, this man I worked with today is named Boaz. May Yahweh bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. Yahweh is showing kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. To which Ruth may have rightly said, why didn't you tell me this sooner? I could have looked for that field But don't miss what just happened right there in that moment between these two women. Did you see it? Yahweh is showing kindness to us. Do you remember how Naomi felt? Yahweh has raised his fist against me. He has dealt bitterly with me. The dark clouds that had been swirling around Naomi for years, clouds that had forced a name change from pleasant one to bitter one, have broken. At least a little bit, the clouds have opened. And Naomi, see, her theology doesn't have her seeing accidents or coincidences. The same theology that had accurately assessed the difficulties of her life from Yahweh's hand now correctly attributes the turnaround to his gracious providence. What a day this has been. How amazing the impact a righteous man, a good man, a loving and gracious, heroic man can have in the lives of two women. But he's not done. (laughs) Verse 21. Then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Now, stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. And then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all, excuse me, all the while, about two months, she lived with her mother-in-law. Close scene two. And the listener is left wondering, wait a second. I thought he was a kinsman redeemer. He's a relative of Elimelech. What's Boaz doing? Man, he got so much done in one day and then two months nothing? Like, what's going on here? What's going to happen next? Well, come back next Sunday. (laughs) But while you ponder that, Not reading ahead. Don't spoil it. (laughs) Ponder something else. Particularly you men here today and online. I want you to think, how can you joyfully give expression this week, this day, at lunch, 
to the character of God and his covenant of grace? How can you, as a man this week, give expression to the character of God and his covenant of grace? How can you live expectantly, awaking each morning to the possibility of the power you have in one day to be an agent of the goodness and grace of God for someone in your life or someone in our town or someone at your workplace? Let's be, men, let's be on the lookout for opportunities to be an expression of love and grace and hope. You don't have to have a lot of resources or a lot of money. You don't have to be wealthy or have any influence like you may be thinking Boaz has because in your life you have at least one other person I'm sure of it that you can have influence upon with a word and a kind act a a loving face instead of an angry scowl right like we can do this guys I mean look at look around look around you look at all the men in this room What if God poured out his spirit of grace into all the men in this room and sent them out into this town acting this way? Wow! Can you imagine the waves of grace that would flow into our valley? Worship team, would you come up? Man, if you you find it Difficult to think how you could do that. Here's here's how you do that, right? Because I said there's an internal muscle that flexed with compassion towards the need. So if you find you got a flabby grace muscle, (laughs) what do you do about that? You meditate on Jesus. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He was the incarnation of Yahweh in this world. And he suffered a crucifixion and he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he has broken the back of sin in your life and he has forgiven every sin and he has paid every debt and he has poured out grace upon you and he loves you and he's given you his Holy Spirit and he's given you a Bible and a word to read to know what it looks like to live and love him. And he wants you now to be the incarnation of the Father in the lives of your kids and your wife and your family and this city. Meditate on Jesus. And as that grace flows towards you and gratitude explodes from your heart, it'll flow out towards others. That's how you, man, and then you're going to be ripped. Who needs a six-pack when you can have like, mmm, grace. May it be so.